Hello and welcome back. You are listening to Exocast, you lucky person, the podcast that takes you far beyond our solar system to explore distant extrasolar worlds. As always, I'm Andrew Rushby, and I'm joined by Hannah Wakeford and Hugh Osborne. In this episode of Exocast, we cover a few of the month's most interesting papers, and this will be for January, February 2021. Um, and we focused on a single development that's called our eye, a single paper, uh, as opposed to the a technique that we were adopting last year, where we'd go through as many papers as we can, list off all <laughs> of the planets we found. We thought we'd take a deep dive into some more uh, papers that might set up a bit of a discussion as well. So who's first up? How about you, Hannah? What have you found this month? Ah, so this month, in a standard fashion, I've gone with a paper on clouds. Well, surprise, <laughs> surprise. <laughs> okay. okay, let's face it, that they are incredibly interesting. Uh, and if you're interested in clouds a little bit more, you should listen to Exocast 49B, where we interview Diana Powell all about her work on clouds. Uh, but this paper that I looked at was called The Physics of Falling Raindrops in Diverse Planetary Atmospheres. And I used this uh, segment as an excuse to do a little bit of research and reading this week. So it was also a selfish choice there. The physics of raindrops really kind of sold me um, because there was there's so much stuff that goes into it. And this is a 40-page behemoth of a paper by uh, Caitlin Loftus and Robin Wordsworth. And it's following on from Hugh's tradition. I have It is currently just a submitted paper That's rather fine. than an accepted and peer-reviewed paper. Uh, it's been submitted to the Journal of Geophysical Research. So stay tuned. There may be some additions or changes to this through time. So if you are interested in the physics of falling raindrops in diverse planetary atmospheres, please keep an eye out for this paper. So if you've ever thought about clouds, and if you've listened to Exocast before, I'm hoping that I've made you think about clouds before, just a little bit, um, then your thoughts have kind of probably ranged from, oh, those are really pretty, to, oh, no, it's going to rain. Or if you thought a little bit deeper, it can go from, wow, those are so cool, I wonder what what is happening there, what matters, to, oh, God, absolutely everything matters. These things are really, really complicated. <laughs> the Hannah mindset. <laughs> <laughs> This paper really kind of skirts along that beautiful kind of physics edge of, oh God, this is a rabbit hole that we're going down, let's see where it takes us. But it does actually manage to tie up quite a lot of the physical processes in these clouds and in raindrops specifically into a little bow whilst kind of delving into the entire rabbit burrow to stretch my metaphor a little bit. <laughs> so I, I kind of want to summarize the fun, easy parts that were easy for, for me to follow and see if I can translate that a little bit. And I apologize to all the theorists out there who could summarize this a lot better than I can. Um, but raindrops falling below a cloud are governed by fundamental, the fluid and the thermodynamics. So how the material moves and how it transfers heat. So these are the two kind of main parts of physics and the equations and the laws that govern them that we look at when we're talking about clouds. And in this paper, they're able to summarize um, from their conclusions and the simulations that they've done that the shape of the rain droplets, the velocity of the rain droplets, so how quickly they're falling and how quickly they evaporate, so change their phase from a liquid back to a gas phase, all of those things, all of those aspects of these raindrops can be described as a function of the size of the raindrop itself, regardless of what planetary atmosphere it's in. So all of these physical properties of these raindrops, which 
kind of govern what's happening can be described by the size of your raindrop. And they demonstrate that the vertical transport of latent heat, so latent heat is required to enact a phase change. So when you see a cloud forming, that is a gas condensing into a liquid. So it's created a phase change from a gas to a liquid. Now to do that, it's going to be releasing some latent heat. Now, think of this like uh, if you've got an ice cube and you're heating it up. So you're adding heat to the system. The ice cube will increase in temperature. At some point, the ice will start to melt. At that point, you'll be adding heat to the system, but the temperature of the water actually won't be changing. So that over that phase change, the temperature, even though you're adding energy to the system, you're adding heat, the temperature doesn't change. And this is the latent heat. This is how much heat is taken in by something whilst it's enacting this phase change. So when something turns from a gas to a liquid, it releases that heat. And when something turns from a liquid to a gas, it takes on that heat. So when you are condensing and you're forming a rain droplet, you're actually giving the gas that surrounds you actual extra heat. You're releasing it to the gas around you. So you change the condition of the gas around you. And that's my environmental physics lessons coming in there to help me explain that. So some of my students will uh, hear some of that material again. But what they were doing is trying to understand how and demonstrate how these raindrops are transferring that heat to the material around them. And another thing that's really important is how much of this material is condensed into these raindroplets. So how much of the gas phase material turns into a liquid? Because once you've taken that gas phase material and turned it into a liquid, it's no longer in the gas phase where you're able to measure it. So that is sequestering material that then falls, drops through the atmosphere as a raindrop, and you no longer see it in that part of the atmosphere. So this is called rain out. And this rain out is removing that material from that part of the, that layer of the atmosphere. So they're also trying to look at all of these different aspects of clouds and the way rain transports those different aspects. And they found, again, that these can be described by a single dimensionless number, which is used to evaluate the tendency of a rain droplet with a given mass and radius to evaporate over a certain length scale. So a certain distance in the atmosphere, so a certain distance it drops, it describes how far down in the atmosphere a raindrop will fall before it re-evaporates, before it turns back into a gas again. Because as it goes down, these atmospheres are hotter internally. So as you go down, the temperature of the atmosphere is increasing. It evaporates that material into the gas phase again. And they found that the length scale here and the raindrop size were the really important things. So it's a really fascinating simplification of a lot of very complex aspects of these clouds. Um, and the study really focused on the life and death of these raindrops, not actually the formation. So it wasn't actually looking at the condensation reactions themselves, which a lot of other studies have done. It was saying, okay, this thing's already formed. What happens now? And it was seeing how it falls through the atmosphere. And importantly, this is valid for all liquid raindrops in various conditions, including water rain here that we have in Earth's atmosphere. And one of the really fun things is it's also important for liquid iron rain that we expect in hot Jupiter atmospheres. For example, the hot Jupiter WASP-76b was ex measured earlier in 2020 
to have iron clouds in its atmosphere and probably iron rain across the Terminator. So these kinds of studies can be used, and this simplification of the maths that they came up with in this study can be used to try and pull out those kinds of parameters, the sizes of these rain droplets from some of the observations. So it might be really interesting to incorporate this kind of mathematics into to some different observational measurements that we can make. So I'm just going to kind of try and go through a little bit about what I've just said. So imagine, you're probably imagining raindrops as a teardrop shape. So we're talking, these are really dependent on size of the raindrops, like we said, but they're not actually teardrop shaped. That's not how liquid forms. Uh, it doesn't like to form points at all. What you end up with with, a, with liquids is you create spheres or oblate spheroid shapes. So kind of like um, they get elongated, they get, they get squished. And raindrops can't infinitely grow in size. You don't quite literally get raindrops buckets. It doesn't rain buckets. They can't get that big. Um, definitely doesn't rain cats and dogs either. Um, there's a balance between the surface tension of the substance that's making that droplet. So water, we, we can measure the surface tension of that. Iron, liquid iron droplets will have a different surface tension. Um, but there's a balance between that surface tension of the substance and the air resistance that it's experiencing as it falls. And when the surface tension is no longer the dominant force on that raindrop, it's going to start breaking apart into smaller raindrops. So whether those raindrops survive down to the surface or if they're kind of going through a deep atmosphere or will evaporate will actually depend on how quickly they're turned back into the gas from that liquid form. So this means that raindrops that start evaporating, so if you start evaporating the outside of your raindrop, the drop's getting smaller. So you've evaporated the outer edge of your raindrop, your raindrop is now smaller. And actually, this becomes a runaway process. You smaller raindrop, you lose more of your surface, and you actually get smaller and smaller as you evaporate, as you go down. So the authors have tested out in, in this paper, they looked at a huge range of different conditions, um, background gases, changes in the mass and density of the gas that the raindrop's falling through, the temperature, the pressure gradients, the altitude at which that drop formed. So where did that, that fully formed drop look? At what altitude did it start? And the gravity of these planets as well. And across all of these conditions, they find that the critical properties of that raindrop, their size, the thermal velocity, that evaporation rate, can actually all be described with the same generalized method. So by understanding how the clouds rain deeper in the atmosphere, we can get a really important information about the condensable cycle of that planet, regardless of that planet type. On the Earth, the water cycle, so the condensing water cycle, the rain, is hugely vital for more than just life on this planet, but the whole climate, the whole weather system of the Earth. And the same is, is true for exoplanet atmospheres as well. And the generalized prescription that they put forward in this paper will be really helpful for understanding the timescales that are associated with recycling that material back into the upper atmosphere. So we rain down that material, heats up, it evaporates, it's transported back up, it condenses, it rains down. How long are those timescales is going to be really important. How much material is formed in that rain droplet, how much it's taking away from that gas phase is going to be really important in trying to understand and where it takes it, how far down in the atmosphere does it take it, is, is something that we're still trying to figure out from our observations and what that might mean. So there's a huge amount of feedback aspects that they go into in this paper, and it's really nicely detailed, all of those physics, and then it brings them all together to understand 
what are the fundamental parameters that we need to under, analyze and, and explore. So it was a really, really fascinating paper. It was a really deep dive for me to go into all of that microphysics and try and understand exactly what's going on. But you can relate it back to so many different systems and they really did explore a huge range of planetary sizes. And the, and the full analysis suggested that the cloud edge the mass-weighted raindrop size, so the distribution of that raindrop size, is really key to this control of the climate of the whole planet. So I, I, th I found it fascinating, but also a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that sounds and pretty I, I think out of oh, the three of us, I probably look at clouds waves and I was like, oh God, this is a bit far. Hang on. I must say, I'm, I'm pretty interested, Hannah, when you said that you know, it's so important about the length scale of, of the, uh, you know, of the droplet in terms of its evaporation. I would have naively assumed you get to a temperature boundary, it evaporates. You know, that, that's it. You just find where that temperature limit is in your atmosphere and you just assume that material is, is gone. But I guess that's, that's just a naive approach. So, of course, that the size of your droplet is, is you've got the, it's still going to evaporate in the exterior. So the exterior is going to evaporate first. And if you've got the terminal velocity of your droplet is faster than the evaporation rate, so if yeah. it's traveling quicker, it's going to travel over a certain distance before the next layer of it goes. You know, So it's the combination of those two things about how far has it traveled in the time it's taken for that outer set of atoms to enact that phase change so that the next ones get the thermal heat that they need to enact that, that phase change. So it's about the changing boundary condition essentially for those raindrops yeah pretty cool like i say a naive a naive assumption being uh you know proven incorrect obviously and, and getting some clarity let's say on how that process works i mean when, when i hear, hear you there talking about like the limits on raindrop size i couldn't help but think well what planet and what like rain do we need to have a bucket sized raindrop right how is there is it possible is it this is the only thing i was thinking of so that, that that's the balance between that surface tension so you can calculate the surface tension of a, a lot of different liquids we know it for iron we know it for water um not all cloud species do form liquids so this is very important aspect that i didn't quite touch on is that this is specifically talking about liquid phases and some of the materials that we, we talk about on the show, the magnesium silicates, the sand glass based clouds, those don't form a liquid phase. Those go straight to a solid phase. So they, this, this simplification wouldn't work for them as well. Um, but for iron, it works and we know the surface tension. So what you need to be able to calculate, Hugh, is you need to create <laughs> a atmosphere that uh, will balance that so that you can create a humongous bucket. So how big's your bucket? Are we talking like standard beach bucket? You said bucket. Or, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'll leave that to you. I'm now tempted to go do that calculation. Yeah. Uh, in a few months, that paper appearing on the archive uh, from Hugh Osborne. Bucket-sized rain. Uh, <laughs> observational discriminants. I mean, uh, 1st of April is only six weeks away. I could... <laughs> Go for it. Well, okay. Well, putting Hugh on the spot, it's your turn next. What paper have you you've got for our Exocast audience this week, month? Yeah, so I've also gone for a rather theoretical paper. You know, normally I choose some some new planetary system or some new observations, but this this month I've gone for uh, for well, what what is is isn't quite theory. So it's basically asking how can we squeeze more information out of the observations we have um, from photometric surveys, so from Kepler and Tess. Uh, so I chose. 
this paper is called Multi-Wavelength Photometry Derived from, from Monochromatic Kepler Data, and it's by Christina Hedges. So that's quite a, a mouthful, but um, I mean, the first thing to note is that, um, well, monochromatic means single color, right? And that's uh, important to, to remember because all, basically all Kepler, uh, all transit surveys, so Kepler, K2, TESS, Plato in the future, um, these are all just photon buckets. These are like, um, there's no filter, there's no prism, there's no color information that you get from these telescopes. Um, we just care about counting the number of photons that fall onto the detector, and we don't really uh, measure anything to do with the color of, of the light that's coming in. Um, and of course, for finding transits, uh, that's not really an issue. You know, the shadow that, that a transiting planet has when it when it crosses a star that's um, going to block all the starlight equally. That's going to be a monochromatic change, usually. Um, so so you just want to count all the starlight as possible to find um, these transits. Um, but there are a lot of features other than transits um, that photometric missions like Kepler and TESS observe, um, where because we're only observing a single color, you know, monochromatic information, we miss out on a lot of information that, that's otherwise kind of interesting. So... Um, for example, you know, stellar pulsations, you have some stars that pulse um, that we see in, in the light curve because they get brighter and fainter, but also they change color dramatically during these these um, these pulsations. And, and we don't see that in Kepler data. Um, equally, there's, uh, you know, Kepler observed thousands of stellar flares, and we only really measure the, the amount of the flux has increased during that flare. We don't measure how blue or red those flares actually were. Um, eclipsing binaries, unlike planets, these often flash red or blue during eclipse. And actually that includes some uh, EBs which are false positives to transits, so they look like planet transits. And if we had colour information for these events, these eclipses, we would be able to tell that they are not transits because they have this colour change that occurs during the eclipse. Um, so, you know, if Kepler or TESS could measure this colour shift, it could actually help us find more planets, or at least be, be more confident in what is a planet. They can't, right? Or can they? So, um, so, so that was kind of the, the the setup for this paper, and and it and um, well. So, have you ever looked through looked at a, a solar system planet through a cheap telescope, or maybe taken taken a photo of the moon uh, on a phone camera? Uh, and what you might have seen is that the colours often get distorted. So, the the blue and the red get smeared out into one side or the other. Uh, and this happens because of the optics that's that's um, that's you know between the object and the the pixel basically. Um, there's differential diffraction happening in the lenses or even in the mirrors, and you know blue light is being bent more than red light, and what ends up is that you end up with these 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 colors being separated. This is chromatic aberration uh, through lenses, and it's you know tends to be that uh, space telescopes have this effect. Uh, they, you know, they, they correct for this effect to some extent. So obviously they're superior in quality to the cheap telescopes you might have looked through. Um, so, um, so usually this effect is, is at least, you know, somewhat removed, although it can't be removed completely. Uh, and added to that as well, the, the pixels that we're observing um, star, stars and planets with, um, these themselves are actually changed how they respond given the, the um, wavelength of the light that's hitting them. So, there are some minute things that, that um, occur in, in, in the data from Kepler and TESS that, that could potentially reveal uh, color information. But, you know, in all, for all intents and purposes, we, we can't get to those. And also, those effects are, are minuscule. We're talking only a few parts per million compared to, you know, the light that's coming from the star. So, um, so actually, 
you know, figuring out those effects are, are really, really difficult. And there's also a ton of other things going on, you know, when you look at the, the data from Kepler or TESS uh, that are far larger. So changes in the background, systematics due to the, the telescope drift or just uh, pointing or, or multiple things. Um, also how each pixel individually responds to light, you know, pixels aren't perfect photon buckets. Some of them have different effects than others. And if you don't model this, then there's no way you'll be able to figure out how the color is changing. Um, and also just the optics themselves, as well as having this slight color difference, they're changing temperature, they're changing how they respond to, to light over time. Um, but if you can model all of these things together and you can basically um, get rid of all of these effects, which are far larger than, than the, this color shift, then you can actually delve down into the data from Kepler and you can figure out how the color of the star or whatever it is that Kepler was observing is changing over time. Uh, so this is what uh, Christina Hedges and, and co showed this month is that it, they could indeed measure this color change in Kepler data, which, um, you know, it's one of the few times I've read a paper and just been like blown away by, you know, such a simplistic, but, in, but really well executed idea. You know, it's like we've given, I don't know if you've seen these videos of people being given enchroma glasses who are previously colorblind and suddenly they can tell the difference between, you That's know, different color, right? That we've, we've given enchroma glasses to, to Kepler, you know, this is, and I was the one that was, that was like, you know, blown away by that. Apparently um, it's kind of pseudoscientific and only works for certain versions yes, of color. I think it's only, it doesn't even really work for them, but. It's not an advo for chroma. So well, I mean, that, that, is it, that, that actually works probably for this metaphor because um, there, this, this effect only is measurable for a certain you know, subset of stars, basically the ones that are bright enough where this effect is, has a large enough amplitude that we can measure it. Cool. Um, and so the results that, that they've showed in this paper are really impressive. So, so you can see these pulsating stars swing from red to blue over the course of their pulsation cycles. Um, and you see these extremely red M dwarfs during a, a flare event flashing blue. Um, and, and even, you know, you see these transit-like signals where, you know, Kepler would see it as a transiting planet candidate. And you see during the, the transit, it's changing color, which is obviously a sign that it's not a transiting planet. It's, it's an eclipsing binary. So, so, um, so the, so the, just the, the data they showed where they had this color information was, you know, really incredible. And for the moment, it's only been applied to a few hundred stars, I think, um, and only in Kepler data. But I think in the future, you know, once these, um, this model gets improved and, and uh, maybe gets sped up a little bit, it might well end up being applied to all of the stars in Kepler and TESS that it can be applied to. And then we have this extra dimension of, of data from space telescope surveys, you know. Uh, and and as I said, so for the moment, this is only working for the brightest stars and not the faint ones. Um, but I think this is this is such a cool way that we can take um, photometric data and just you know add a whole new whole new aspect to it. And I I hope in the future that yeah this this becomes the default uh, kind of way of getting photometric data. So we get not only um, you know how much how much light there is coming onto the detector, but also what color is the light, which um, yeah. So that's why I chose this paper. I I, th I found this paper really really fascinating, and I found that you know it's, it's got so much physics in there that was fascinating to look through. But my my biggest question is is if it's so important to have red and blue colors, why didn't we put two filters on the telescope when we were looking at it in the first uh, place? And and I mean, this is non a non trivial thing, and I, I just always do wonder: can we 
could we have designed a Kepler that had two filters instead of the one band and that did simultaneous monitoring? So I said, like, almost all transit surveys um, only observe in one colour. Coro, which was an early European uh, transit the survey, the had three colours. <laughs> and they, they added these, these three colour bands, like, pretty late on in the engineering mm. process. And what happened was, is that the putting this prism and, and increasing the number of detector sizes basically reduced the quality and added a load of noise into the the counts you know that how bright mm. the brightness was varying so suddenly you know in if coro had a single color it might be able to detect something but the fact that it went you know went a bit overcomplicated and tried to get multiple colors meant that there was this added noise and it couldn't no longer it could no longer find as many planets as as might, it might have been able to so there's certainly this this added kind of like um you know the, there's this balance you have to find between do you want as much information as possible you know send up a full um, integral field spectrograph, spectra- whatever. Or do you want just to to focus on the amount of light possible? Uh, you know, uh, measuring the amount of light that's hitting the detector as well as possible, right? And I feel like for transit surveys, because in most cases you only care about the no- amount of light, you go to optimize that. You know, get as big and as good a bucket mm. of photons as you can. Um, whereas for the other things, for pulsations and flares, you know, these secondary no offense to <laughs> slow activity folks but these secondary kind of effects that that we also get with photometric surveys that's where the color information is is interesting but and if it's if it's possible to to back it out you know to account for those systematics and back out that stuff post observation as opposed to doing it you know yeah. as opposed to adding the engineering before it goes up then maybe this that this can solve that problem a little bit more easily but it doesn't sound like we're quite there yet to the point where we can you know calibrate this with temperature changes and, and things like that yeah so at the moment it's just a kind of relative shift like this appears to have gone a different color by this amount you know there's no correlation between that and the, the actual color underneath or the actual temperature change underneath so i think that's that's another thing that needs to you know it needs to be developed but it's certainly a promising avenue for getting extra data out of all of our photometric surveys mm-hmm. And I mean, do you remember a few years ago when we were saying goodbye to Kepler like every month? Like, oh, goodbye to Kepler. It's the last paper from Kepler. It's still giving us information and will do for, you know, how many years into the future? Right? Yeah. Even things that we weren't, we didn't know at the time, this this monochromatic effect here, that, you know, that there's still going to be a lot of data hidden in in the data that Kepler collected and what's being collected currently by Tess and, and moving forward. So Yeah, I was quite shocked to to read that we're now eight years post the Kepler primary mission right i was <laughs> wow that um that that made me feel old <laughs> moves inexorably on here yeah. moves inexorably onwards well actually if you don't mind that's a fantastic segue for me talking about time um because that's sort of the topic of of my paper and i've also very much been sticking with the with the theoretical side of things um very theoretical, this paper, <laughs> in fact. Okay, it's called uh, Chance Played a Role in Determining Whether Earth Stayed Habitable and appeared in Nature Communications, Earth and Environment by Toby Tyrrell. So this, uh, I found a really interesting paper. It falls into that kind of Gaia hypothesis, rare earth, biogeochemistry kind of realm. Um, and it kind of, we want to investigate the emergent and contingent factors that are involved in determining how long planets can be habitable for and whether they can maintain that habitability over time. 
Um, and actually, in this episode, more than ever, actually, we've talked a lot about time and temporality and, you know, the study of these planets through time. And if you'd heard our previous uh, previous episode with Diana, she talked about middle-aged planets and the importance of, like, getting, you know, getting a measure of that planet when it's young and getting it when it's old. Um, and in habitability studies, that is uh, super important, but very tri- tricky to consider. Um, and I've said, you know, maybe not given much thought, but that's not entirely fair. Often we can forget that we're looking at a snapshot of a planet as it existed some time in the past and the data we're getting, you know, depending on how far away it is, might be from a planet that's already been destroyed, which is kind of kind of sad, but also kind of romantic in a way, I guess. Um, but our ideas of habitability are often kind of tempered by this contemporary bias, a bias of the present moment. We're looking at this planet now and what exists on it is a snapshot in time that we can uh, measure and then infer from that a whole host of things. But that might not be entirely true. Now, so it's, it's not safe to say that these concepts are ignored, um, but they are, are very difficult to, to properly study. Um, for example, the co-evolution of the biosphere and the planet on the Earth, that takes millions and, and billions of years. And you know, the driver of those big changes, stars, vary over timescales that are much greater than that of a human life or even of human history. So how do we measure something that changes so slowly? Uh, and until recently, it's been very difficult to do, but thanks to the Gaia, ESA's Gaia Space Observatory, uh, it's we can now get much more accurate estimate, uh, estimates of the age and locations of, of many of the stars that we study, which were somewhat unconstrained <laughs> um, before before Gaia. Um, and this is super important for constructing these models, qualitative and quantitative models that uh, you know we can, uh, which are super important for understanding the, the planetary climate. Um, but when we didn't have when we had those huge uncertainties, we would pass those uncertainties all the way down through the subsequent uh, calculations and that would eventually impact our our climate studies as well. Um, It's like extrapolating someone's entire life from just measuring one of their single heartbeats. It's very difficult, very difficult to do. And Earth provides a good example of this. And if you listen to the show a lot, um, and you're probably like, oh God, he's going to mention it again. And you're right. I like to mention that the early Earth is like an exoplanet because it's almost a completely different planet, different atmosphere, different surface environment, under a cooler star, a different biosphere with, you know, simple in quotes, methanogens and anoxygenic photosynthesizing organisms, no complex depressed apes wandering around the place. Um, and had we been able to characterize this planet, we might not consider it a perfect place for, for complex life. And at the time, we've probably been right. But here we go 3.5 billion years later, and the story is a little bit different. So, you know, at what stage are these planets that we discover uh, along that journey, right? And perhaps more interestingly and pertinent to us and our attitudes uh, for the Earth and our Earth favoritism is, is the Earth lucky or special in some way to have remained habitable for, for as long as it did? So this paper provides a little bit insight into the role of chance, randomness, stochasticity into the history of the habitable planet. How much of the Earth's biosphere is down to happenstance and how much of it is down to physical mechanisms maintaining habitability in some sense. Had the, you know, KT impacted that, that, that impacted the Yucatan Peninsula 65 million years ago, wiped out the dinosaurs, missed the Earth, would mammals have emerged uh, millions of years later as this dominant, large, you know, uh, terrestrial organisms? Or would reptiles still be around? And we'd actually be reptiles speaking another language, having this discussion under a heated sun lamp or something. Um, okay, I'm getting into the realm of science fiction. Let's not do that. <laughs> so what... <laughs> So what Toby Tyrrell did, a professor at the University of Southampton in the UK, he investigated this phenomena by simulating thousands of approximately Earth-like planets under somewhat random conditions um, and random initial feedback uh, strengths. 
Okay, and he, then he used the simplest of all kind of habitability metrics, temperature, to determine how many remained habitable for the duration of the simulation, which was three billion years. So I've discussed climate feedbacks uh, before on the show, and actually in our uh, in our discussion with Diana, we also touched on uh, a few cloud feedbacks there. Um, but they also include processes like the ice albedo effect, which I've touched on before, the carbonate silicate cycle, which I like to talk about. So these are phenomena that you know either amplify or diminish the the strength of a climate forcing, which is a process that is affecting climate in some way. So positive feedback tends to be destabilizing. You know, that is a small perturbation in the forcing um, results in a kind of large effect in that same direction, i.e. a warming leads to much more warming. Uh, whereas a negative feedback can stabilize the planet by dampening that effect of that initial forcing or perturbation. So cooler temperatures leading to less surface weathering and more CO2 in the atmosphere due to the carbon and silicate cycle cooling things down. Uh, sorry, warming things up, I should say. Um, so here, uh, so here, uh, Tyrrell, he, he randomly assigned the forcing strength, which I was a little bit, I, it took me a while to think about that for a while. Um, but I think it's probably justified in that, although it should be bounded, of course, by physical and thermodynamic limits, it seems, you know, reasonable to assume that there's not going to be a, a planetary system that's losing thousands of, of, of Celsius uh, per day in energy. It's unlikely that that will actually exist. It's very difficult to actually measure and determine the strength of many feedbacks that are operating now, and certainly in the past, in the Proterozoic or the Archean. Um, we're still discovering, you know, a lot of the climate sensitivities that that we need to determine to measure climate change properly. Even some of the large-scale atmospheric teleconnections that occur in the atmosphere, these overturning um, circulations, can be. Uh, you know, are, are relatively new discoveries, and a lot of the feedback me mechanisms are still being discovered and debated. Um, so I think it might be logical to assume that um, another terrestrial planet, should life exist on it, is likely going to have some homeostasis in some way. It'll emerge over time. There's other studies that have shown that this can happen randomly, just through non-deterministic physical interactions between the biosphere, atmosphere, geosphere, oceans. It makes sense. Planets are very efficient at recycling, and physics and chemistry are lazy and predictable, and we know what they're going to do. If there's stuff on the surface that will react with stuff in the air, it's going to react, right? It's a predictable process, and it doesn't make sense to, to not do that. <laughs> so initially, this paper touches on the concept of the anthropic principle. Again, something I've mentioned before, and I like to think about it. Um, but it's a kind of in summary, it's it's the fact that all our observations about our planet must be consistent with what we see in our existence. And obviously that sounds very obvious, but from it we can infer a few things. We can infer that the Earth must have been habitable for a very, very long time, because not only do we have evidence from rocks and biology and fossil, but to develop a biosphere that is as old as ours is, it would have required a certain length of time, which was probably on the order of at least a billion years. So we know that it probably hasn't undergone several of these sterilizing events within recent geological history. And we also know the sun has been warming for billions of years, and yet here we still are, the biosphere being billions of years old. There hasn't seemed to be any uh, any kind of break in that habitability. So anything that we make, any assumptions uh, or, or observations we make, have to be consistent with that history as well. The Earth has been habitable for a long time. But this can, it's a bias, because it can result in us putting the cart before the horse a bit uh, and say, okay, well, there's clearly something special about this planet. Let's try and figure out what that is. Maybe even deterministic of, you know, we're, we're chosen to be on this you know, special planet can lead us down to <laughs> relatively unscientific places. But we can also uh, dismiss hypotheses that later turn out to be correct 
that are uh, down to chance, down to randomness. And of course, it's natural for scientists. We want to find things that, you know, are generalized physical processes that are going on and not just assume, well, it must have been a, an asteroid impact because that's a bit of a uh, kind of a hand-waving thing to just dismiss it as, a, as an asteroid impact. But we also can't exclude the possibility that we have to take those things into account. So I realize I'm rambling a bit now. Uh, let's get into the actual paper, shall we? Um, the ensemble study reported 100,000 distinct planets, each simulated 100 times with different chance factors, so that are different sets of perturbations and initial temperatures, the strength of those feedbacks, for example, uh, for each of those 100 cases. And I'll quote from the paper here, out of a population of 100,000, 9% of the planets were successful, that is, they remained in that temperature uh, limit for uh, 3 billion years, at least once, but only one planet was successful every single time of the 100 times they were simulated. And uh, the next the next sentence is one of my favorites. Success rates of individual planets were not limited to 0 or 100%, but instead spanned the whole spectrum. <laughs> so from this, we can infer nothing uh, at all. <laughs> <in fact. laughs> um, and it was at this stage, I thought, oh, okay, um, what can we actually tell from that? Um, I guess that we can't we can't exclude the possibility that chance and luck obviously have played a major role here. It doesn't seem statistically likely that um, we would be here without some uh, intervention from chance and luck alongside these homeostatic mechanisms that keep the Earth habitable over a long time. Uh, and a quote from the paper again, Earth's long-lasting long habitability is therefore likely a contingent rather than inevitable outcome. Now, I like to think about this the other way around. In, 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 let's think about in the cases where habitability has been maintained, where we found a planet that has been habitable for 3 billion, 4 billion years. This could give us some insight, actually, because it could say, if it has been, we have to assume that there were some random factors that, that came into, into, uh, into play here, um, if we're assuming that the assumptions from this paper are correct. So if we discover a planet that's been habitable for, for a long time, there is going to be some random factors involved in maintaining that habitability. And if we want to understand the climate state that we're seeing or any biosphere that might exist, we're probably going to have to try and figure out what random factors happened during that planet's history to really understand its current climate state or even its biosphere, which results as, you know, results in a, in a pretty big issue. Like how on earth are we ever going to figure that out for thousands of planets, if not just a single one, even just the earth, it can be very difficult to, to trace those random events that happen in evolution and, and in the Earth's history to, um, you know, in, in some quantifiable way. It also shows that things could have gone the other way for the Earth very easily. <laughs> um, and that presents us yet another problem of studying potentially exo, uh, habitable exoplanets um, in how much of the current state that we're seeing in our snapshot is actually the result of, of chance, of some chance event that is currently happening that we think may occur on habitable planets and how much is it, is it down to mechanism if we see that biosignature that thermodynamic disequilibrium is it actually a biosignature or is it not just a random volcanic eruption that's occurring we cannot now dismiss that apparently and i'm going to leave this on a relatively open-ended question because i don't know what we can do about that in the future this is this paper has, has given me more questions than it's, it's answered to be honest um and I still think it's a very interesting and pertinent topic and something we should definitely consider, but I don't know how to go about solving it. Yeah, I think that certainly sums it up there really nicely. Yeah. Um, there's so many questions and there's so many aspects that are trying to trying to be looked at here. Do we need to also add in the aspect of searching for an understanding of randomness? Yeah, it might be a whole other episode, right, that we end up getting down there. The philosophy of randomness and chance in, in astrophysics. Um, maybe not for here. Let's um, start playing poker, it'll be fine. Yeah. I don't want to say I regret reading this paper and choosing it. 
<laughs> but I don't know if it's made me feel more confident about our understanding of, of planetary habitability. And again, probably just makes me double down on the idea that in order to really understand any habitable planet, we are going to have to study it in individual sense, in, in, in the context mm-hmm. that we can get it. It's going to be very difficult to do meaningful large number statistics on these kind of planets when there are going to be random effects involved in in those planets that are lucky enough to maintain habitability for as long I as I think they it really also highlights how important our own internal solar system studies are of different types of environments. So Absolutely. going to the moons of Jupiter, going to the moons of Saturn, understanding those worlds as individual deep dives into the data and those environments is so important because that helps take some of that randomness away. They're around the same star. We remove that from the equation. That's no longer a problem. You know, there's lots of little aspects like that that we need to think about. And how can we reduce this randomness? How can we reduce this parameter space so that we can understand things on an individual level without extra stuff coming in? I guess probability is the best we can do at the moment. You know, what's the likelihood of there being a large volcanic eruption? You know, call it a time frequency thing. Once every you know millennia, we might have a an appreciable eruption but again that still requires knowing a lot about the geophysics of that planet and you know if we were talking about asteroid impacts you still need to know a lot about the dynamics of the the solar system that you might be studying or the star system that you might be studying so maybe there's some way we can we can reduce this uh, a little bit i think it's certainly a fascinating phase space Mm. that you know it's exciting to explore on so many different levels yeah i I like thinking about ways you know (laughs) the ways that planets could be completely uh rendered uninhabitable there's something there's something fun about that i don't know why (laughs) and there are many ways Uh, and in fact it seems very unlikely uh, much more likely that they'd be rendered uninhabitable for some terrible catastrophic event than maintain habitability and i guess i should say those random events that occur that kind of they don't assist habitability necessarily that's too deterministic they just aren't detrimental right the perturbation Mm -hmm. isn't so detrimental to habitability that it you know knocks it out of that habitable phase space it's just you know perturbations of a uh, inner distribution occur some of them will knock that planet out some of them will will help if you will in quotes and some of them won't have any appreciable effect Uh, but if we were to find a planet that did make it through that we would probably look back through its history and see some of those well we'd need to see some of those random effects to try and really appreciate and understand its current climate biosphere atmosphere state I guess there could, there could be an argument, right, where you, you want non-catastrophic large events to inspire evolution. You know, if if nothing was happening um, on a planet, then single-celled organisms which evolved first would just be constantly the the best way to survive in some respect, right? Yeah. So yeah. you can't inspire multicellularity or intelligence unless you have challenges for... Yes. Um, biology to overcome so yeah, and th- there is some evidence you know that we do get increased speciation and complexity following you know some catastrophic event like this where you have a new species filling a niche that was uh, you know previously filled by another one uh, and that's totally right here we need these arguably clearly according to this paper we do need those things to happen um, but then it's it's measuring them and understanding them and, and being able to account for them in any meaningful sense that's yeah, that's the fun part, I guess. I was going to say that's the <laughs> tricky part, but we'll we'll leave it as that's the fun part of the study. Yeah, I think so. I think end it on that really nice positive note. There's so many things to explore. Yeah, who doesn't love that? Well, thanks for listening. Um, 
I hope you've enjoyed our, our wide variety of, of exoplanetary papers there. And don't forget to look out for our other episode this month, uh, in which we talk to exoplanet expert Diana Powell about their work on planet-forming disks and cloudy atmospheres. Um, you can, as always, get in touch with us on Twitter, on exo underscore cast, to let us know your thoughts on the show. Um, and you can find all of our episodes on our website, exocast.org, or on iTunes, Spotify, and all good podcasting apps. Um, plus, now you can buy merchandise, Exo- Exocast-branded stickers and T-shirts and bags and mugs, um, all on our Threadless store at exocast.threadless.com. Or if you just want to help, help cover web server costs, you can contribute a few dollars at buymeacoffee.com slash exocast. And a quick shout-out to Dennis Sergeyev and Simon McDonald on Buy Me A Coffee who, who contributed this month. Um, but for now... Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next month for more exoplanetary excitement. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Exocast. I have exoplanets. Exocast. This podcast was brought to you by the Exocast team. Hannah Wakeford, a lecturer in astrophysics at the University of Bristol in the UK. Hugh Osborne, the Tess Chaos Fellow at MIT and the University of Bern, and Andrew Rushby, a postdoctoral fellow in astronomy at the University of California, Irvine. Music was courtesy of Poddington Bear.